This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton Section 28 Chapter 15 Part 2 Wells and the World State Given this difficulty about quite direct democracy over large areas, I think the nearest thing to democracy is despotism. At any rate, I think it is some sort of more or less independent monarchy, such as Andrew Jackson created in America. And I believe it is true to say that the two men whom the modern world really and almost reluctantly regards with impersonal respect as clothed by their office with something historic and honorable are the pope and the president of the united states but to admire the united states as the united states is one thing to admire them as the world state is quite another the attempt of mr wells to make america a sort of model for the federation of all the free nations of the earth though it is international in intention is really as narrowly national in the bad sense as the desire of mr kipling to cover the world with british imperialism or of professor treitschke to cover it with prussian pan-germanism not being schoolboys we no longer believe it can be done by painting it blue with white spots even if they are called stars the insufficiency of british imperialism does not lie in the fact that it has always been applied by force of arms as a matter of fact it has not it has been effected largely by commerce by colonization of comparatively empty places by geographical discovery and diplomatic bargain whether it can be regarded as praise or blame it is certainly the truth that among all the things that have called themselves empires the british has been perhaps the least purely military and has least both of the special guilt and the special glory that goes with militarism the insufficiency of british imperialism is not that it is imperial let alone military the insufficiency of british imperialism is that it is british when it is not merely jewish it is that just as a man is no more than a man so a nation is no more than a nation and any nation is inadequate as an international model any state looks small when it occupies the whole earth any polity is narrow as soon as it is wide as the world it would be just the same if ireland began to paint the map green or montenegro were to paint it black the objection to spreading anything all over the world is that among other things you have to spread it very thin but america which mr wells takes as a model is in another sense rather a warning mr wells says very truly that there was a moment in history when america might well have broken up into independent states like those of europe he seemed to take it for granted that it was in all respects an advantage that this was avoided yet there is surely a case however mildly we put it for a certain importance in the world still attaching to europe there are some who find france as interesting as florida and who think they can learn as much about history and humanity in the marble cities of the mediterranean 
as in the wooden towns of the Middle West. Europe may have been divided, but it was certainly not destroyed. Nor has its peculiar position in the culture of the world been destroyed. Nothing has yet appeared capable of completely eclipsing it, either in its extension in America or its imitation in Japan. But the immediate point here is perhaps a more important one. There is now no creed accepted as embodying the common sense of all Europe as the Catholic creed was accepted as embodying it in medieval times. There is no culture broadly superior to all the others as the Mediterranean culture was superior to that of the barbarians in Roman times. If Europe were united in modern times, it would probably be by the victory of one of its types over others, possibly over all the others. And when America was united finally in the nineteenth century, it was taken by the victory of one of its types over others. It is not yet certain that this victory was a good thing. It is not yet certain that the world will be better for the triumph of the North over the South traditions of America. It may yet turn out to be as unfortunate as a triumph of the North Germans, over the southern traditions of Germany and of Europe. The men who will not face this fact are men whose minds are not free. They are more crushed by progress than by any pietists, by providence. They are not allowed to question that whatever has recently happened was all for the best. Now progress is providence without God. That is, it is a theory that everything has always perpetually gone right by accident. It is a sort of atheistic optimism, based on an everlasting coincidence far more miraculous than a miracle. If there be no purpose, or if the purpose permits of human free will, then in either case it is almost insanely unlikely that there should be in history a period of steady and uninterrupted progress, or in other words a period in which poor bewildered humanity moves amid a chaos of complications without making a single mistake. What has to be hammered into the heads of most normal newspaper readers today is that man has made a great many mistakes. Modern man has made a great many mistakes. Indeed, in the case of that progressive and pioneering character, one is sometimes tempted to say that he has made nothing but mistakes. Calvinism was a mistake, and capitalism was a mistake, and Teutonism and the flattery of the northern tribes were mistakes. In the French, the persecution of Catholicism by the politicians was a mistake, as they found out in the Great War. When the memory gave Irish or Italian Catholics an excuse for hanging back. In England, the loss of agriculture and therefore of food supply in war, and the power to stand the siege, was a mistake. And in America, the introduction of the Negro slaves was a mistake. But it may yet be found that the sacrifice of the southern white man to them was even more of a mistake. The reason of this doubt is in one word. We have not yet seen the end of the whole industrial experiment, and there are already signs of it coming to a bad end. It may end in Bolshevism. It is more likely to end in the servile state. Indeed, the two things are not so different as some suppose, and they grow less different every day. 
the Bolshevists have already called in capitalists to help them crush the free peasants. The capitalists are quite likely to call in labor leaders to whitewash their compromise as social reform or even socialism. The cosmopolitan Jews, who are the communists in the East, will not find it so very hard to make a bargain with the cosmopolitan Jews, who are capitalists in the West. The Western Jews would be willing to admit a nominal socialism. The Eastern Jews have already admitted that their socialism is nominal. It was the Bolshevist leader himself who said, Russia is again a capitalist country. But whoever makes the bargain, and whatever is its precise character, the substance of it will be servile. It will be servile in the only rational and reliable sense, that is, an arrangement by which a mass of men are ensured shelter and livelihood in return for being subjected to a law which obliges them to continue to labor. Of course it will not be called the servile state. It is very probable that it will be called the socialist state. But nobody seems to realize how very near all the industrial countries are to it. At any moment it may appear in the simple form of compulsory arbitration. For compulsory arbitration dealing with private employers is by definition slavery. When workmen receive unemployment pay and at the same time arouse more and more irritation by going on strike, it may seem very natural to give them the unemployment pay for good and forbid them the strike for good, and the combination of those two things is by definition slavery. And Trotsky can beat any trust magnate as a strike-breaker, for he does not even pretend that his compulsory labor is a free bargain. If Trotsky and the trust magnate come to a working compromise, that compromise will be a servile state but it will also be the supreme and by far the most constructive and conclusive result of the industrial movement in history, of the power of machinery or money, of the huge populations of the modern cities, of scientific inventions and resources, of all the things before which the agricultural society of the southern confederacy went down. But even those who cannot see that commercialism may end in the triumph of slavery, can see that the northern victory has to a great extent ended in the triumph of commercialism. And the point at the moment is that this did definitely mean, even at the time, the triumph of one American type over another American type, just as much as any European war might mean the triumph of one European type over another. A victory of England over France would be a victory of merchants over peasants, and the victory of northerners over southerners was a victory of merchants over squires, so that the very unity which Mr. Wells contrasts so favorably with war was not only itself due to a war, but to a war which had one of the most questionable and even perilous of the results of war. That result was a change in the balance of power, the predominance of a particular partner, the exaltation of a particular example, the eclipse of excellent traditions when the defeated lost their international influence. In short, it made exactly the same sort of difference of which we speak when we say that 1870 was a disaster to Europe 
or that it was necessary to fight Prussia, lest she should Prussianize the whole world. America would have been very different if the leadership had remained with Virginia. The world would have been very different if America had been very different. It is quite reasonable to rejoice that the issue went as it did. Indeed, as I have explained elsewhere, for other reasons, I do on the whole rejoice in it. But it is certainly not self-evident that it is a matter for rejoicing. One type of American state conquered and subjugated another type of American state, and the virtues and values of the latter were very largely lost to the world. So if Mr. Wells insists on the parallel of a United States of Europe, he must accept the parallel of a civil war of Europe. He must suppose that the peasant countries crush the industrial countries, or vice versa, and that one or the other of them becomes the European tradition, to the neglect of the other. The situation which seems to satisfy him so completely in America is, after all, the situation which would result in Europe if the Germanic empires, let us say, had entirely arrested the special development of the Slavs, or if the influence of France had really broken off short under a blow from Britain. The Old South had qualities of humane civilization which have not sufficiently survived, or at any rate have not sufficiently spread. It is true that the decline of the agricultural South has been considerably balanced by the growth of the agricultural West. It is true, as I have occasion to emphasize in another place, that the West does give the new America something that is nearly a normal peasantry, as a pendant to the industrial towns. But this is not an answer. It is rather an argumentation of the argument. In so far as America is saved, it is saved by being patchy, and would be ruined if the western patch had the same fate as the southern patch. When all is said, therefore, the advantages of American unification are not so certain that we can apply them to a world unification. The doubt could be expressed in a great many ways, and by a great many examples. For that matter, it is already being felt that the supremacy of the Middle West in politics is inflicting upon other localities exactly the sort of local injustice that turns provinces into nations struggling to be free. It has already inflicted what amounts to religious persecution, or the imposition of an alien morality on the wine-growing civilization of California. In a word, the American system is a good one, as governments go, but it is too large, and the world will not be improved by making it larger. And for this reason alone, I should reject this second method of uniting England and America, which is not only Americanizing England, but Americanizing everything else. But the essential reason is that a type of culture came out on top in America and England in the 19th century, which cannot and would not be tolerated on top of the world. To unite all the systems at the top without improving and simplifying their social organization below would be to tie all the tops of the trees together where they rise above a dense and poisonous jungle and make the jungle darker than before. To create such a cosmopolitan political platform would be to build a roof above our own heads, to shut out the sunlight on which only usurers and conspirators, clad in gold, could walk about in the sun, 
this is no moment when industrial intellectualism can inflict such an artificial oppression upon the world industrialism itself is coming to see dark days and its future is very doubtful it is split from end to end with strikes and struggles for economic life in which the poor not only plead that they are starving but even the rich can only plead that they are bankrupt the peasantries are growing not only more prosperous but more politically effective the russian mojuk has held up the bolshevist government of moscow and petersburg a huge concession has been made by england to ireland the league of nations has decided for poland against prussia it is not certain that industrialism will not wither even in its own field it is certain that its intellectual ideas will not be allowed to cover every field and this sort of cosmopolitan culture is one of its ideas industrialism itself may perish or on the other hand industrialism itself may survive by some searching and scientific reform that will really guarantee economic obscurity to all it may really purge itself of the accidental maladies of anarchy and famine and continue as a machine but at least as a comparatively clean and humanely shielded machine at any rate no longer as a man-eating machine capitalism may clear itself of its worst corruptions by such reform as is open to it by creating humane and healthy conditions for labor and setting the laboring class to work under a lucid and recognized law it may make pittsburgh one vast model factory for all who will model themselves upon factories and may give to all men and women in its employment a clear social status in which they can be contented and secure and on the day when that social security is established for the masses when the industrial capitalism has achieved this larger and more logical organization and found peace at last a strange and shadowy and ironic triumph like an abstract apology will surely hover over all those graves in the wilderness where lay the bones of so many gallant gentlemen men who had also from their youth known and upheld such a social stratification who had the courage to call a spade a spade and a slave a slave the end of section twenty eight chapter fifteen